So Money episode 1137, the best of 2020. My favorite So Money conversations, the ones I just can't stop thinking about. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. As promised, the next two weeks will be dedicated to highlighting some of the most popular episodes of the year as well as some of my favorite, absolute favorite conversations. You know, So Money has experienced incredible growth in 2020. I'm so blown away, so grateful. Thousands of new listeners. If you're one of them, welcome. And based on reviews, I can tell that many of you are looking now more than ever for financial inspiration, money strategy. It's a weird time, right? And this is when we get serious about things. I guess a pandemic or a recession is the thing that gets us to adopt a sense of urgency, determination. But for whatever reason you found yourself here, I just want to say that I really appreciate your engagement. I'm so grateful for you subscribing to the podcast. This six-year show... Yes, almost. Our six-year anniversary is next month, has experienced a lot along the way. And so I just have immense, immense gratitude to everybody who is listening, who has shared the show, who's commented, who's joined me on the podcast. Maybe you've co-hosted the Friday episode. So I just want to take a beat here and, and say thank you. And I can't thank you enough. I like to think that so money, um, you know, it's not just a place to learn about money but to maybe even reflect on some of the serious stuff that's happening in our relationships and our careers and our families, as well as, you know, how money impacts things like race and gender and policies and how race, gender and policies affect money. And if you need timely, relevant insights and advice, I hope this show has been here for you because we've dedicated to addressing things like the pandemic's effect on our careers, our finances, our futures, as well as, of course, the summer's Black Lives Matter movement uh, and those protests and the ongoing learnings about the racial wealth gap or chasm, as I've learned to call it. So coming up over the next two weeks, I'll be airing clips from some of the best interviews related to real estate, to money, race, the psychology of money. And today's show, I'll tell you, it was a hard one to produce. It is a roundup of a few of my favorite episodes of the year, just a few. Impossible to do it all, right? there. I mean, I, 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 there's a piece of me that loves every single show more than the next. But these episodes really, as far as I can remember, really stopped me in my tracks. These are the conversations with people that I had on the show that then stayed with me. You know, like you just listen to something and maybe not the whole episode, but there was a part of the episode that really, really shook you or spoke to you. And these are the conversations that I'll bring to the dinner table um, or I'll (laughs) right before going to bed at 1 a.m. be like, should we maybe rethink our will? (laughs) I'm not saying that hasn't happened thanks to this podcast, but these are the episodes that moved me, that made me really rethink some of my decisions. And the first one I want to revisit is with Heather Chauvin, who after being diagnosed with stage four cancer and facing post-treatments of over $1,000 per week, 
in this life-threatening moment, Heather, who by the way, is a mother of four children, develops a plan to not only survive, but thrive. And, you know, we talk a lot about how life throws us curveballs, but in this scenario, it's like an avalanche coming right at you, 100 miles an hour. That was Heather's life. So take a listen to hear about how, first of all, she learned when she had cancer and why being cured wasn't actually the cure and the health and financial changes that she consciously made to help her and her family with the long-term recovery. My boys are uh, 15, 10, and seven, but my youngest was a year old and I was still breastfeeding. And I went to the hospital and they told me um, from doing a CT of my abdomen and blood work, told me in the emergency room that I had cancer. And even then for a new show, I was like, oh, I'm young. It's going to be stage one. And then through other diagnosis, they're like, no, Heather, you have stage four. This is a rapid growing cancer. And if we don't do something about it now, like you're not going to make it to next week. And I had to surrender. I had to surrender and really kind of stop trying to control every aspect of my life and realize that, you know, hustling can only get you so far until it can't get you any further anymore. Um, and I rearranged my priorities, but it was a huge smack in the face, but it was also an opportunity for me to kind of reassess how I wanted to feel in my life. Um, and yeah, there was a lot to learn when, you know, when anything happens to you like that and you feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you, um, you start to realign and ask yourself some deep questions. Hmm. Well, and immediately you need health care, which right. I understand was to the tune of a thousand dollars a week for additional treatments. And, and, you know, again, not to um, make light of the situation because right now some people have lost their jobs, not the same as being diagnosed stage four cancer, but financially in some ways, a similar burden, right? Where you have to suddenly mm -hmm. like come up with the money to survive. In your case, it was life or death. And how did you financially work your way through this, let alone, you know, the mental work and the, the emotional, the emotional healing? Mm -hmm. So I live in Canada. So the traditional treatment was actually covered. But when I was left, um, you know, and the doctor's like, okay, you're good. We've gotten you to as far as we possibly can. Your tests are great, meaning your tests are like, you're free to go. And I felt like somebody just <laughs> it sounds awful. I don't know why this analogy is coming to my mind. It's like your first day out of prison, right? They're like, you're free, you're free. And there I am saying you're in remission, but my body felt like I was a hundred years old. My soul was broken. And I truly felt like if I didn't do something else, it was going to come back because I did not know how to nurture myself. So that was when I dove into functional medicine. And that was where I had to start paying, you know, a thousand dollars a week plus, um, to revitalize my body and to make those choices because it was outside of quote unquote conventional medicine. That was a personal choice that I had to make. Um, but I had to kind of I was against my back was against the wall and I had to come that come to Jesus moment where I had to ask myself, Heather, are you committed to making this work? And I did everything I possibly could. Like Farnoosh, we were maxing out credit cards. We were selling everything that we possibly could. Like when people say, 
you know, when there's a will, there is a way. My will was so big because I just wanted to live for my boys. Like I did not want them to grow up without a mother. And I understand some of us don't have control over that, but I felt like I'm still alive. Now I need to learn how to thrive. I need to learn how to stay alive. And I did absolutely everything I possibly could to figure that out. I understand that you, you you wrote to me and you said, I stopped putting blind faith in my husband to handle the bills. Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up believing that men are the ones who deal with the money and women, you know, we're the ones that make the extra cash and we, we, you know, whether we're buying the gifts or doing whatever, um, I, w- I remember my mother-in-law saying to me, just keep your job, which I wasn't making a lot of money. This was previous to cancer. And she said, just, you know, buy the groceries, honey. And I'm like, what? That's my purpose is to just buy the groceries, like just to get by. And after cancer, when one, I had to start investing in my health again, I'm like, okay, let's look at our money. I believe that we had more than what we actually had. And I would ask, how much is the car payment? And he would tell me what the car payment was. And then when we actually did the math, I'm like, it's three times as much as what you thought it was. And I realized I was putting all of this confidence onto him when yet he didn't have any more financial literacy than I did. And then in terms of cutting back, what what are the things you cut back on to shore up $4,000 a month? I mean, it, that sounds like you just have to move or yeah. sell all your belongings and and you're a big family, so it, it's making adjustments like that can be hard. What what specifically did you cut out? So the interesting part was I didn't believe that we could afford it. I did not believe that we could afford it, but I had this belief that I was going to survive. Like I had this hard belief, like we're going to make this happen. So like I said earlier, we were maxing out every credit card that we possibly could. I remember calling the phone, like calling our um, phone companies and taking the data off of our phone so that we just had our minimum Wi-Fi. And they tried so hard to keep it on our phone. And I'm like, no, it's an extra $40 a month or $60 a month or whatever it was. I think one of us actually got rid of our phone so that we only had one for the household. Um, we had a old camper trailer that we would go camping with the kids every summer. We sold that just to get whatever we could. And because we were living in a financial kind of survival mode, we cut back on all the food essentials. Like we were eating beans and rice. And although that's not great for your health, um, we went back to absolutely everything that we possibly could. The kids didn't get essentials unless they needed it. Um, clothes, underwear, things like that. We asked for as much as we possibly could from friends and family, if they wanted to donate like hand-me-downs and things like that. But every penny was accounted for. Asking for help is a big one, right? I think that's hardest for a lot of people is succumbing to asking for help. It feels a a bit defeatist, but I think that in some ways, if you have the courage to do that, that can be sometimes your saving grace. Mm -hmm. I remember um, when I was first, this is actually part of one of my biggest learnings was learning to receive. And I remember when I was diagnosed that people stopped there would you, of course, you always have those people. If you need anything, let me know. But there was people that just took initiative and would literally drop food off at the house. My friends, you know, made a basket and they put even some put checks in there or money or gift certificates. And I wasn't allowed to say no, thank you because I was so, so sick. So it would just come 
come into my house and I had to learn how to receive. And I would say that's been one of the biggest game changers when it comes to even receiving money, like in my business, the give and receive, um, that was a big part I was missing and I didn't know I was missing it. So I know we all resist, you know, asking for help, but when you do, and it feels lighter, what I find is you're learning, you're actually doing the other person a service as well, because they want to help. They have this, you know, yearning in their heart to be of service to you. So when you are open and say, yes, yes, you can, you're helping them as well. Heather Chauvin is now cancer-free. She's gone on to develop a wildly successful business and has a book coming out in the new year. It's called Dying to Be a Good Mother. Oh, that really gave me goosebumps. And the subtitle is How I Dropped the Guilt and Took Control of My Life and Parenting. Go to heatherchauvin.com. I think she has a podcast as well if you want to catch up with her there buy the book. And if you'd like to go back and listen to this full episode, it was episode 1033, which aired in April. That same week that Heather's episode aired in April, I also chatted with business owner Dan Price, founder of Gravity Payments. Now, as we know, when the pandemic and shelter-in-place orders came into effect in March, many businesses were forced to close and many of them have yet to reopen. Dan, in some ways, and his business, Gravity Payments, they were at the epicenter of this because Gravity Payments, which is a credit card processing company, works with many of the country's small service-oriented businesses. I think 25% of his client base is restaurants. And after that, it's local merchants. And as those businesses closed, Gravity Payments experienced a 55% drop in revenue in a matter of weeks. So like a lot of CEOs and founders at that moment, he had to make some really fast decisions, namely whether I apply for bankruptcy or not. And then this is where the story really takes a turn. It's really where it kind of picks up because rather than laying off his employees, as many businesses have done and will continue to do in 2021, Dan managed to keep every single person on his staff with a unique strategy that he did not come up with himself. So here he is talking about that decision and its impact. So I want to be very clear that this was not an idea that I came up with or anybody on the executive team. It came from employees that are dealing with our customers every day. And we were just very transparent about how the right thing by the book to do would be to lay off somewhere between 20 and 50% of the employees. So that would be you know, 40 to 100 people that would lose their job, number one. Number two, the right thing to do would be to add, because our competitors charge usually a monthly fee in addition to a percentage fee for all their customers. And if we did that, we'd still be pricing way below the rest of the market, but we could add a $40 fee to our 20,000 small businesses clients. That would net us $800,000 a month. So between those two things, we would be completely in the clear and it's totally doable. I mean, it would just be gut-wrenching and it would feel wrong and I would lose sleep and feel guilty. But from a strict business X's and O's standpoint, that is what we as CEOs are taught to do in this situation. So I laid that out there for the employees. I was just transparent with exactly what the facts were. 
And I said, my goal was to avoid layoffs or price increases to clients. I, I was completely open-minded. And if other people thought we should do one of those two things, I wanted to hear from them. But I also promised that I wouldn't make any decisions on it for four or five days because I wanted to speak individually one-on-one -on -one with every single employee in the company and get their feedback. So I spent the next 40 hours after that meeting uh, well, 40 hours spread out over four days, 10 hours a day, meeting with every employee, getting their feedback, getting their ideas. And there, there was an amazing amount of unity and harmony. There was the first idea that came up that was really interesting that we didn't end up doing. The first idea that came up that really piqued my interest was let's make this a democratic solution and we'll come up, we'll make you, we'll give you suggestions so that you can see what you could propose that we would all vote for. But whatever the solution is, Dan, you come up with it, but then we'll vote. And, and if we don't, if you don't get enough votes, if you don't get 50% or 80% of the company on board, then we won't do it. And you'll have to come up with another idea. So I like that idea, but somebody else pointed out that a one size fits all solution in a crisis might not fit because we have a tremendous amount of diversity at gravity and a tremendous amount of diversity in terms of how the crisis affected people. For example, one guy raised his hand and said, hey, Dan, I want you to know that my wife makes a ton of money, way more than I do. And she's in a great job that is actually not harmed at all by the pandemic. So I can go without pay or I can wow. take whatever pay cut you need me to. And then we had uh, another uh, a woman who raised her hand and said, my husband just got laid off. And so we went from two incomes and we had kind of set up our whole life on, on having two incomes. Now we only have one income. And so I'm going to work as hard as I can to try to see what I can do to contribute here. We also had some people who said, hey, I can work extra hours. Like now that there's a stay at home order, my social life has been completely fried. And so I'm saving money because I'm not spending money socially uh, so I can afford to take a pay cut. And also I can work a lot more hours. So tell me what you need. And then we had other people who said the opposite, who said, you know, their childcare, their school for their kids, their single, single parent, you know, they, they all of a sudden not only have a pro professional and financial potential crisis on their hands, but also they're trying to figure out how to stand up, you know, homeschooling and childcare and all those things in terms of like being able to even focus and work at all. So there was just a huge amount of diversity and people pointed that out and said, one size fits all doesn't work very well. It would be really, really hard on some people. Why don't we just open it up to everybody individually rather than having Dan or Tammy, my chief, our chief operating officer, make a decision. Why don't we set it up and just have every individual just do whatever they can. And so we've solicited everybody, tell us what you want to do. And we had 98% of the company asked to cut their pay, all but four people. Um, but what really got me was we had 10 people that said they wanted to go completely without pay. And we had between two and three dozen people say that they wanted to take at least a 50% haircut. And I'll admit something a little embarrassing. I was planning on taking a 50% pay cut, but after 10 other people said they were going to go without pay, I realized I needed <laughs> to do the same thing. And so, um, so then I announced that I also was going to go without pay. And, you know, it's not just the, the financial aspect, though. That's the immediate crisis. It's really about the recovery. We have a gentleman who's been working basically around the clock 
And lawyers, you know, still have a lot of work to do, but it's harder for them to get paid if they never see their clients. So he came up with basically a whole software program for lawyers to be able to email an invoice to a client and get paid easily. I mentioned the restaurant one. We partnered with a company called Joe Coffee, which is a a coffee shop app for ordering ahead Mm -hmm. so that people can do social distancing. And we found and identified that partner. Um, This is still early, but I tweeted at Danny Meyer, the famous New York restaurant uh, entrepreneur and impresario, and said, hey, why don't we put together some technology products right now? And so we're just in the early stages of talking to his team about what can we do to help the restaurant industry. So the level of innovation that all of a sudden is coming out of this is fantastic. Will it add up enough so that we'll be able to be sustainable before the funds run out, that's what we have to figure out over the coming months. Right. So it begs the question, what was the net savings through this, this exercise of having everybody say, here's what I can contribute and what is the runway now? So we, we thought that we were kind of in a million dollar or so gap, but it was a little worse than we thought it was more that like a million and a half because the, the sales kept falling afterwards but we were able to quickly come together and save a million dollars total through all those things. And that doesn't count the extra hours that people want to work and the extra projects that they want to take on. But what's staggering to me is that we did that in less than two weeks. So we came up with a million dollars of savings and we cut our loss on a monthly basis from like one and a half million or maybe just a little bit more to a, to a bit more than a half million uh, we have, we don't have savings, but we do have a, a, a five, $6 million line of credit that we can tap into. So we think that'll buy us, you know, eight, nine, 10 months, but also we don't know that the, the employees working at gravity will be able to maintain their pay cuts for that whole period of time. And since it's totally optional, you know, that's a discussion that's still ongoing. So it's a, there's a lot of unanswered questions right now, and we're still trying to sift through it and figure out that path forward. That was Dan Price. You know, the lesson for me in his story is just how sometimes it's really important to ask others for answers, ask others for help. Whether you're the CEO of your own company or a parent struggling to put food on the table, um, I think that there is this narrative that we've been passing around, that we've been celebrating, right? This narrative in personal finance, this narrative in entrepreneurship, that like doing it by yourself doing it on your own with no help is somehow heroic and masterful. Well, I'd argue that it takes just as much heroism to sort of assume that you don't know all the answers and to put yourself in a vulnerable situ- position and say, I need help. I'm going to ask for help. That takes strength. It really does. It takes true leadership in this case with Dan Price. And you may remember Gravity Payments because 2015, in 2015, he was on the podcast right around the time when he made headlines for raising the minimum salary at his company to $70,000. And Dan reduced his own salary to $70,000. Guess where it was before that? A million dollars. So Dan's a unique person, but I think his story is one that we can all learn from. And whether, again, you're a CEO of your own company or you're an everyday person putting in an honest day's work, supporting your family, being a great colleague, it's important to ask for help. It's important to lean on others and not assume that you have to have all of the answers. 
So anyway, for more on that conversation, which again, really um, woke me up, check out episode 1032. That also aired in April, the same week as Heather's episode. And last, I just cannot stop thinking about this guest's book. And I actually ended up writing an article about this interview for Bloomberg. It was so compelling. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I had to keep creating more content around it. And it actually went a bit viral on social media. I posted about it on my Instagram. I got like over a thousand, you know, in engagements and tons of people weighing in. And it's, it's fascinating. The book is called Die With Zero. The author is Bill Perkins. Now he and I sat down to chat in August. And here's something that you don't know. I haven't shared this. When we recorded the interview the first time, we finished, we parted ways, and I realized um, it didn't record. The recording widget wasn't working. And I failed to do a, a test before we started because I just assumed it would work. Never assume. Oh my gosh. So I immediately reached out to Bill, tail between my legs. I was like, I can't believe I'm actually having to say this to you, but can you please come back at some point and re-record with me because this interview is not here. It is, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, except that I don't have it. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. And he said to me, I'm going to go take a shower and I will come back out and we will re-record it. Don't you worry. So I love Bill Perkins for a lot of reasons, not just because he wrote this book, because he's a good human and he didn't make me feel worse than I already was feeling about having lost the interview. This doesn't normally happen, by the way. I'm pretty good at uh, <laughs> producing my show. But in this case, and, and then the first time we did the conversation, it was so good. The second time was good, but it wasn't, I don't think, as great because, you know, it never is. But it was still really, really great. And, and so anyway, this is the conversation that we had. I'm going to share it with you in a minute. We sat down to talk about his counterintuitive message. Here it is, that you should spend more while you are alive and aim to die with an empty bank account, because that is the sign of a life well lived, according to Bill Perkins. Now, his financial philosophy is not brand new. This is something that has been discussed here and there, but largely with the uber, uber rich, right? Uh, Lorene Powell Jobs, who inherited over $20 billion from her late husband, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, she's vowing to give away all of her assets during her living years because she cares about social and economic causes. Sting, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all pledging to leave no money to their children, maybe a little bit, but not much. But after this podcast, I thought this needs to be a message that the mainstream public hears. And I personally was pretty shocked to find myself convinced that spending more money while you're alive is more fulfilling than leaving behind a nest egg, because I think we all really would love to know that when we're not here, our family is still taken care of, right? That, or that we were able to leave a bit of a legacy, a financial legacy to our children, that we worked so hard that we had residual benefits to this and, and that our you know generations to come might be able to benefit from that. It gets a little tricky when you talk about race, though, because when I posted this on social media, my friend Rachel Rogers, who's been on the show a couple times, and she's just such a force. She runs a community called um, Hello 7. She's got a book coming out in 2021 called We Should All Be Millionaires. And she's a black woman. And she's like, I 
can understand this philosophy, Farnoosh. However, as a black woman who is a millionaire, who didn't come from a wealthy family, and knowing that there is a wealth gap and that we have systemic issues, it's important to me to leave money for my kids. I want to be able to ensure that generations to come, my family and my descendants will be able to have a leg up because that is equity, right? That is what is equitable for for black society. Like if you are rich as a black person right now, maybe you should leave a nest egg to your descendants because we know that there's a huge racial wealth gap and many more white children are born into wealth than black children. So maybe this is a great philosophy, but with some exceptions, depending on what you're fighting for, right? If you're fighting for racial equality, it's debatable whether this is like actually uh, the right way to go. And I talked about this with Bill, not on the podcast, but later we did an Instagram live for Bloomberg because I couldn't, again, another piece of content that I did on this. And I brought up the race topic and he was like, point taken. He's like, I think that you should take this and, you know, make this into your own philosophy. Like this isn't set in stone. That certainly if your determination is to leave a legacy for your children and your grandchildren, you can actually do that. I didn't know this. You can actually set up future trusts for grandchildren. And that isn't to say that you're not dying with zero. Like you can still do a lot with your money during your living years. There is nothing in this book that says do not leave money for your children or for your grandchildren. Mainly it's that um, don't forget about yourself in this process, right? Enjoy your life. Go out there, experience life. So anyway, I wasn't planning on rambling so much about this podcast, uh, about this episode before I aired you the snippet. But um, I think just for me, it really did question so much of what we take as an assumption, like, of course, you must leave a financial legacy. You must have a will. You must leave inheritance. Like, duh, that's the right and only thing to do. But I was I was led to see things differently after this episode. And as Bill says, with each year that passes, our ability to convert dollars into positive life experiences declines over time. The optimal utility of money is using money to have the maximum greatest experiences that you can in your living years. It's important because experiences are what actually drive fulfillment and happiness. He says, I'm more about saving your life than saving your money. Here's part of our conversation. Congrats on your book, Die With Zero. It's not often that we talk about not saving your money on this show, but your book really emphasizes the importance of, you know, enjoying your money, having experiences while you're alive. You start off in the book talking about the moment when this idea kind of gelled for you and inspired the book, which is that you were in with your doctor getting a health screening and, you know, money's a big cause of stress. So he naturally asked you about financial stress. And he said, do you have fears of running out of money? And you said, I hope I run out of money, something the doctor had never heard before. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm more about saving your life than saving your money. And so, you know, there's this idea that, you know, we go to work, for money to have experiences. And the first experiences that we're going to work for is survival, right? Food, health, shelter. Uh, and then after that, it's whatever experiences we want to have to, 
want to have, whether that's putting a kid through college, going on vacation, raving in the club with glow sticks, whatever it may be. And each person has different experiences that they'd like to have before they die. And the way to get the maximum amount of experiences and, and, you know, experiences is kind of correlated with fulfillment and happiness to get the maximum out of it is to use all your resources, um, before you die. Exactly. You want to time it exactly when you die. And so I was hoping when I said that, like, I hope I run out of money is I was basically saying that I hope I have the fullest life possible. I pos you know, that I'm able to with the resources that I have. Yeah, there's back and forth between surviving versus thriving. You say in the introduction of your book, which you wrote in the summer of 2019, a much different time than when where we are today, that, you know, this book is not about making your money grow. It's about making your life grow, which you just discussed. Um, but, you know, fast forward to now, a, a year later, how is your book finding relevance in the context of today when many people who've been hard hit financially they don't really think in terms of thriving. It's really just about survival. Well, I, I think these times put an exclamation point in my book. And I think, you know, the current, the current pandemic, um, it's an unfortunate way to get people off autopilot. You know, a lot of people get good at their jobs in order to become successful. And that becomes a habit. And that habit keeps them on autopilot, getting better and better and doing that thing where we don't pay attention to the reasons why we're doing that thing. You know, the reasons why we're going to work, why are we going to work? What is the thing that we're hoping to accomplish? Now, you know, a lot of people are focused on survival, but then sometimes they just get focused on the number getting bigger and bigger and bigger and not what they're going to convert that money, that number into what experiences they want to have, you know? And so we wind up being like uh, hamsters on a wheel where at first, you know, the cheese was the, the reward. And then we just keep running because we're running and we never get the reward. You reference this term called optimal utility of money in your book. And you talk about a friend who is now a billionaire, but you knew him prior to even becoming a millionaire. And his goal at the offset was not to be a billionaire. His goal was to have 15 million in the bank and then retire. But then that never that happened. And then he kept going and going and going. So when I hear optimal utility of money in layman's terms, that's like enough. Like what is your enough number. What's the calculus for that? I think that calculus is different for every person. It depends on what they want out of, of life at, at the time. And we're talking about John Arnold. Um, he, he basically identified a plane he wanted to buy a house and these things. And he felt that was enough. And as he was good at his job and he's one of the greatest commodity traders that ever lived, he just kept going, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Problem is, is that he kept working past the point of his ability to convert that money into experiences. He will not die with zero. As a matter of fact, he retired and went into philanthropy and his philanthropy won't even be able to give away the money efficiently while, while, while as a single individual or even with the team he's hired. And so, you know, John was working for free and he didn't know it. I don't know exactly when that point was, but, but it, it happened in the past. And, you know, he gave me the job of punching him in the face. If he kept on working, obviously I didn't punch him in the face, but I didn't warn him that I was about to punch him in his face until he finally retired and I didn't have to punch him in his face. But it was definitely a little too late for him. And he, there was a period of his life that he basically just fitted away. What about the kids? This is a question that you even dedicated a whole chapter to in your book. It's a, it's a common follow up to this die with zero philosophy. What are you actually saying as far as 
taking care of your children? Because a lot of people, they, you know, they aspire to passing down their wealth. What is your response to that? You know, a lot of people, when I say, you know, you should die with zero, I usually get the retort. Well, that sounds nice for somebody who doesn't have kids. And, you know, my, my first response is I'm not talking about your kids' money. The money for your kids is theirs. It's not yours. You know, and so if you really care about your kids and we're really thinking about our kids, we should be separating that money out and putting it into protected protected accounts for them such that, God forbid, you get into an accident or some sort of legal battle. You get sued and you lose. You don't vaporize the kids money along with your money. That's one. Um, Two, this idea that. You know, you're meant to have certain experiences at certain times of your life. There's many, many different seasons. You know, I won't be hella skiing when I'm 90. I won't even be in wave running when I'm 65 due to injuries. Um, and so the money for wave running and hella skiing, that's, that's now or never, right? And my glow stick days have passed me, you know, not because of health, <laughs> just because my attitude has changed, right? Yeah. Like I, I, I just don't get as much enjoyment because my mental facility, I don't know what it is. There's some sort of magic going on in the brain, but it's just not as exciting to rave all night in a club with glow sticks. Um, and so, you know, what experience you have is, and you choose to have or also when you choose to have them. And this is true for you. And this is true for your kids. And so I can tell you that the optimal time to give to your kids is not when you die. It's not 60 year olds, right? That's not going to have the, the, the maximum impact because just like you, their health will decline. You know, most people reach uh, physical maturity, I believe at 33 and mental maturity at 28. And then we plateau and then we're in decline. And so each year that passes, even each day, our ability to convert dollars into positive life experiences declines over time. And if we're trying to have the maximum impact on our kids' lives, we want to basically deliberately choose to give them money in a certain time frame. Now, certain kids may be more mature or less mature at a different age or, you know, have different physical characteristics, but we want to be deliberate about this. We don't want it to be uh, a tip at some random date in the future when we die, semi-random, uh, and to be a random amount, who knows, you know, what we expend or whatever. And also, you know, quite morbidly, but, you know, factually, we have to confront the honest, uh, the, the hard card hole facts is that some of your kids may die before you, right? We don't ever want that to happen, but it may happen, right? And so that means you'll be giving it to a random amount of money at a random date to random people. That's not what about the kids. That's not caring, right? That's just chance. And so the die with zero way is a very deliberate way. I want to get people off autopilot and think about maximizing their lives and their kids' lives. Our discussion continues with Bill talking about how to not overspend in your lifetime, because that's a little bit of a risk. If you take on this philosophy, how do you make sure that you don't uh, die with a negative bank account? Also, the important role that insurance plays if you plan to die with zero. And I had to ask him, culturally, why do you think we are so obsessed with leaving an inheritance. That is the focus, but why? So for more on our conversation, check out episode 1077, and you can learn more about Bill at diewithzerobook.com. And that's today's Best of So Money 2020. Please join us again on Wednesday when I'll be re-airing some of the best from the year related to real estate. So many of us relocated in 2020. We ourselves bought a new home. And so if the new year is your time for making a change of location, maybe you're interested in investing in real estate, 
Don't miss Wednesday's show. Lots of great highlights from the year. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.